Let's read our text and then we'll pray together this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Lord Jesus, we've sung this morning of your greatness and of your goodness towards us, your faithfulness, We ask now that you would speak to our hearts and renew our minds and sanctify us in your truth. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would empower me, use me, and work in all of us to accomplish your good purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you want a strong faith? Do you desire this morning to be spiritually encouraged. I do. I want that. I need that. And you all do as well. What you are in need of this morning is a stronger faith, a deeper faith, a spiritual encouragement to infuse you with the stamina and the joy in order to endure the life that is the Christian life and make it to the end, to reach the goal of spiritual maturity. If we're going to reach the finish line, We need encouragement. We need strength. And that's exactly what this text is about. If you look back up at the end of chapter 1, Paul has told us that the goal of his ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ. See that in verse 28. This is what Paul toiled for. This is what Paul labored for, what he strained towards, what he poured his heart and soul into, seeing the body, the church, believers like you and me, built up in their faith to reach spiritual maturity. That was the focus of his thoughts. That was the focus of his prayers. That was the goal of his writing, the aim of his preaching, the point of all his personal interactions. This was something that Paul took massive risks for, something that Paul suffered greatly something that he sacrificed for. His goal in all things was to see people believe in Jesus Christ and then grow to be more and more like Jesus until they reach the finish line. Paul's heart for the people in this church, the church at Colossae, the people who received this letter, his heart is very evident in this, in this text, even though it says in verse 1 that he's never actually seen them face to face. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, a neighboring town about 10 miles downstream, and for all who have not seen me face to face. You have to wonder if maybe Paul even had in mind you and me, people who needed the things he was writing about, but people he never had a chance to meet. Paul makes it clear that he loves these People And they are no less dear to his heart than people like the Corinthians or people like the Ephesians, churches where he had spent much time and been there face to face. Paul tells these people that he's thankful for them. We saw that in chapter 1. He's excited about what God is doing in their lives. And he's burdened for them and personally invested in their spiritual Welfares. You see, in order to reach the goal of spiritual maturity, Paul knew that their faith and ours needs to be strengthened. He, he says this in verse 2, that, that he wants their hearts to be encouraged. And we see it again at the end in verse 5, that, that he wants to see the firmness of their faith. There is strength and encouragement and stability and maturity that he wants to see produced in them. This word for encourage in verse 2, when he says, I want your hearts to be encouraged, this has the idea of coming alongside. And it's a word that's very similar to the word that's used to describe who the Holy Spirit is. He is often called the comforter. The, the paraclete, paracleto, to come alongside. And, and you can come alongside to encourage someone who's sad or discouraged. Comfort is a good way to render that word. But you can also come alongside someone 
to, to, to strengthen them and to prepare them. The way I, I almost imagine Paul as a general who's going down the line and inspecting his troops to make sure that they're prepared, to make sure that, that they are ready to stand strong because of the onslaught that they're going to face. You see, these people have started well. As we read in chapter 1, there's a lot to be excited about that. These people have heard the gospel from Epaphras, and they've believed, and they have love for the brothers, and their faith is growing. There's a lot of good things happening here. But Paul's eager to see them go deeper. He wants to see them prepared to face this onslaught of false teaching, these dangerous ideas that were spreading in their city. Ideas that were threatening the church. So he writes to strengthen and encourage their faith. And what I want to do this morning is just observe four things we can learn about spiritual strength. Because I think those things will be helpful for us. And the first we find in verse 2, that spiritual strength is built in community. Spiritual strength is built in community. We'll start in verse 1 again. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle, that's the same word we find in In chapter 1, verse 29, this labor, this toil. How great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all who have not seen me face to face. What is he struggling for? What is he praying for? What's he battling for? Here it is in verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. This spiritual strength, this encouraged heart, heart referring here to the inner person. This inner strength is built in the context of the Christian community. Paul has spoken earlier of the bond that they share in Christ. Unity in the gospel. We have to understand this first. Unity, this, this, this bond that they have is something that is objective and real. It's not something that doesn't exist yet that they need to create. It's something they already have. He's already called them in chapter 1, verse 2, if you look back at it, saints and faithful brothers. That is what they are. They've been made holy by God and joined together in the family of God. He says in verse 118 that Christ is the head of the body, the church. That metaphor of the body shows that we are already a part of something that is intimately joined together by virtue of our faith in Christ. So we are the family of God, we see in chapter 1, verse 2. We're part of the body of Christ, we see in verse 18. And later in chapter 3, verse 11, he will tell us that we are objectively already one in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 11, he says here, speaking to those who have, who have put on the image of the creator, who are sharing faith in Christ, he says here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. They have an objective unity already. And I think that's something that when people talk about unity in the church, we have to start there. Unity is not something we create, not something that's lacking, that we're supposed to build. It's something we already possess by virtue of who we are, by being part of the body, part of God's family. But Paul desires to see this objective reality of their unity lived out practically, to be experienced to greater and greater degrees. They already have a lot of love for each other, and for that, Paul is very thankful. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and look at this, and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul says, I'm excited that you guys love each other, and that you love not just one another in this church, you have love for all who belong to Christ. So they already have love for one another. Paul's thankful for that. But this love needs to grow. This love is to continue. This love is to bear fruit and to have an ongoing effect in the church. This is why he'll say later in chapter 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, what does it say? Forgiving each other. That takes love, doesn't it? Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
They already have love for one another, but Paul tells them to put on love. They already have unity in Christ, but he's saying, I want you to be knit together and, and, and deepen the bonds that you already have. You see, if they're going to be spiritually encouraged, if their inner man is going to be strengthened and their faith is to be deepened, that's going to happen as they grow in love for one another. It happens best in the context of the Christian community. And we have to define, so what is this love that knits us together? Well, we know that Paul understands love maybe differently than the way the world today would understand love. You can go out there, outside the walls of the church, outside the truth of Scripture, and find a lot of different definitions you know, for love. What is love? Right? There's even songs about it. Well, the Bible tells us what love is. Our love, the love that Paul wants to see deepened in these people is a love that is defined by Christ. It's not just generic unity. This is not just the kumbaya campfire scene. This is a love that is Christian, specifically Christian in nature. And it's experienced by those who share a common Lord and a common faith. It's a love that's been initiated by Christ. He loved us first. Therefore, we love him and we're called then to love one another. It's a love that's been modeled by Christ. Christ's love for us is sacrificial. It's not, not the kind of love that, like some human love that says, I value you because of how you make me feel, because of what I get from you. No, true love is sacrificial, like the love of Christ, the one who died for us. True love seeks the good of the other. Christ's love brings us to God and brings God's blessings to us. And our love for one another is to be that kind of love. And Paul says the result of the love that we have for each other is that we are to be further knit together. He says, I'm, I'm laboring, I'm toiling, struggling, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. You see, as we love Christ, as we love his truth, and as we love each other, this is the context in which spiritual encouragement happens. And I think we can understand this most clearly when we flip this around and reverse it as a negative. A church that is not knit together in love. A church that is fragmented. A church where there is criticism and a judgmental spirit or maybe just apathy towards others. That is not the kind of church where people's hearts and spirits will be encouraged and strengthened as they follow Christ. That kind of church will be unsuccessful in developing spiritual maturity in its members. A fragmented church cannot produce strong, mature, faithful followers of Christ. I mean, this logic is very clear. I think Jesus made a point in a different kind of an argument. He was accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus speaks a true proverb and says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. That's common sense. Jesus is saying, listen, you should know this. Everybody knows this. And this is true in the church as well. If we are fragmented, not united by love, there's not going to be growth and encouragement and strength. We're not going to make very much progress towards spiritual maturity. The love that you have for other people in this church, just think about yourself for a moment. The love that you have for others in the church is essential if we want to see people grow in spiritual maturity. We need a love that is marked by sacrifice in this church. We need love that is marked by service in this church. We need love that is marked by loyalty in this church, tenderness, love that is guided by truth. We need the love that builds up, the kind of love that edifies others, the kind of love that has an effect on the body itself because it's more than just a feeling, a warm feeling that you have towards others. To be honest, some people don't want to be a part of this kind of a church. They want maybe the kind of love that makes them feel good, the kind of love where everybody's nice to each other, the kind of love where everyone experiences affirmation and kind words, but not the kind of love that knits us together and speaks the truth and is always pushing towards something. Not just pushing towards unity for unity's sake, but pushing towards Christ-likeness, pushing towards spiritual maturity, the kind of love that loves you enough to tell you when you're wrong. The kind of love that loves you enough to actually oppose certain things in your life that would be harmful to you, that would be a detriment to your spiritual growth and encouragement. Not everybody wants to get that close to other people in the church 
Because not everybody wants to experience those kinds of relationships, and not everybody wants the responsibility of having to do that for other people. Sometimes we prefer to be independent individuals. We don't want people to get too close to us, and we don't want to get too close to them. We fear being known, and we don't want the hassle of having to get involved in other people's messes. Because I've got enough of my own messes. I don't need yours. I'll just be honest. It's how I feel sometimes. But Paul sees their unity in the church being knit together in love as a key part of their spiritual encouragement. If we remain disjointed, we will not experience all that God desires to do in us spiritually. It's only when we fully embrace our identity as fellow members of God's family, fellow members of Christ's body, fellow partakers of the Holy Spirit, it's only when we embrace that that we will experience the spiritual encouragement that we need. It's only then that others will get the spiritual encouragement they need if we're going to make it all the way to the end of the journey, all the way to spiritual maturity. Paul's great struggle for their encouragement means he wants to see them united in love, knit together. So that's our first observation this morning is that spiritual strength is built in community. There's a second point. This is really where Paul spends most of his time, is that spiritual strength is produced by a deeper understanding of Christ. It's produced by a deeper understanding of Christ. Look in verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Here it is. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to be encouraged this morning in your faith, if you want to become strong and mature, then you need to know more of Christ. Whether you got saved last week or whether you've been saved for four decades, whether you're in your 70s or whether you're seven, what we all need is to know more of Christ. Paul piles up words here to drive home a point. Uh, in, the, in the Greek text, there's even this alliteration that several of these words all start with the same letter. He's like almost pounding on his desk as he's writing this, that your hearts may be encouraged it together to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul says, listen, there is one path to spiritual maturity. There is one path. To, to, to becoming who God intends you to be. And that is a deeper understanding of who Jesus Christ really is. We never outgrow that. We never get past that. We never set the doctrine of Christ aside and go on into bigger and better things. Paul says it's all in Christ. He is the one we need to know and to understand and to experience. This is what they need, and this is what Paul wants for them, and this is what we need to know more of Christ and to experience the spiritual strengthening and blessing that comes from going deeper into our faith. The full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. In the Greek text, it doesn't say which is Christ. It's it's very blunt. It says the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. It's emphatic. It's Jesus That is the secret. That is at the core of our faith. The ESV translates what Paul wants for them is that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. The New American Standard translates it this way, that they would be attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. This is what Paul wants for them, what he prays for them, why he's writing to them. This is why Paul talks about Jesus so much in this letter. It's because he believes this. He knows it to be true. And he wants them to have full assurance. What does that full assurance mean? This is confidence. He wants them to be confident in the sense that they're not doubting anything about who Christ is. That they're not doubting anything about what Christ has accomplished. That they are absolutely and fully assured and confident in Jesus, fully convinced. This is a strong faith. That's what he wants to see in them. There's an amazing story I've heard and read multiple times. Perhaps some of you have heard, if you've ever done any studies in philosophy, about a man named David Hume. Does that ring a bell for some of you? He was a skeptic. Um, He was an intellectual. He was a critic of organized religion. 
Um, he was maybe barely agnostic if he was, in any sense, believed in God at all. And he was well known for his critiques of Christianity. But it's recorded that this man, David Hume, this is centuries ago, he traveled 20 miles to hear this man named George Whitfield preach. George Whitfield was an evangelist. He traveled throughout Great Britain and the United States preaching, and people would come from miles around to hear this man with no microphone speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's recorded that David Hume traveled to hear George Whitfield preach, and at 5 a.m., he's walking down the street of the city when someone recognized him, and this man said, aren't you David Hume? He said, yes. And the man asked, where are you going? And he said, to hear George Whitfield preach really? And the man goes, what? You don't believe a word that George Whitfield preaches. And David Hume answered, no, but he does. He does. What was David Hume so struck by? What was so compelling to him that he had to go hear this man preach even though he didn't believe a word he said? It was the confidence and the passion and the zeal and that this man, George Whitfield, was fully convinced of every word that he preached about Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I want you to have this confidence that you would be fully assured. We need that. We need that. The conviction of Whitfield, the full assurance he had in the power and the truth of the gospel was so apparent that it drew the interest and demanded the attention even of skeptics like David Hume. And that's the kind of conviction Paul wants us to have, a full assurance that is apparent to all. But he wants them, look carefully at what he says, the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. These words, understanding and knowledge, shows that Paul doesn't just want them to feel something. He doesn't just want them to feel confident. He wants them to know something. And this knowledge, this understanding is really the source of their confidence. They know who Jesus is, and they understand the glorious truth of the gospel. That's the source of this assurance and this confidence and this boldness and this courage. These people need to know something if they're going to feel that. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, From the day we heard, hearing about their belief in Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you. And what's Paul been praying for them? Constantly, faithfully. He's been praying this, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you want to be spiritually encouraged, if you want to be strengthened in your faith, that cannot happen apart from knowledge and understanding. Now, you can know a lot and understand a lot and not be changed. Knowledge does not equal automatically maturity. But maturity cannot happen apart from such knowledge. You'll never outgrow your knowledge of Christ. You'll never become stronger than your understanding of the truth of Scripture. It can't happen. And so Paul wants them to continue, that their hearts would be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Maturity is not equal to knowledge, but it's impossible without it. You see, the encouragement and the strength that Paul wants for them this is not just merely getting emotionally hyped up. I mean, all you have to do is drink a six-pack, and you're ready to fight ten men, right? Call that liquid courage. Have you guys ever seen that, perhaps? That's not what Paul wants for these people. He doesn't want them just to be, in, in, in an illogical sense, overly confident. No, he wants them to be confident because of what they know, because of who Jesus is, to be confident in that. This is the kind of encouragement that comes from a deep knowledge of the truth, the kind of truth that anchors you and puts steel into your backbone. But what is it that they are to understand? What is it that they must know? He tells us the content of this knowledge. The full assurance of understanding and the knowledge specifically of God's mystery, which is Christ. And here's what he says about Christ. That in Christ, verse 3, are hidden or stored up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul reminds us that Jesus is the sum and the definition of all we seek to know and love. In him, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 19, all the fullness of God dwells, which means you can't find anything more out there than what you can find in Christ, unless you think you can improve on God himself. 
In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, listen, it's all found in Christ. Everything you need to know, everything you need to understand, all the secret truths and the mysteries that these people out there are saying you need. Everything you need is found in Christ. Everything that these false teachers say comes through mystical experience or through religious ritual or through human philosophy. Paul says it's all found in Christ. We don't need additional revelation from so-called prophets because we have Christ. We don't need the Book of Mormon, additional revelation telling us things that we need to know in addition to the scriptures. We don't need the Jehovah's Witness literature There's nothing missing from all that God intends for us to know and experience. Christ is true knowledge, better than the so-called knowledge of the false teachers. Christ is true wisdom, better than the so-called wisdom of the mystics and all of their experiences. And Paul says that to grasp this knowledge and to receive this wisdom makes one not only spiritually strong, it makes us spiritually rich. Spiritually rich. We have an abundance He says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 2, that we have the riches of full assurance when we come to understand and to know Christ. There is no lack. We are not deprived or missing out on anything if we have Jesus. If you have Christ, Paul says, you have all the abundance God intends for you as his children. And this is why Christ was the central theme of Paul's ministry. If you look back up in chapter 1, verse 28. Paul declares emphatically, him we proclaim. Paul knew he needed to get one message across. The message about who Jesus was and what Jesus had accomplished. Because Christ is supreme. Christ is all. Christ is enough. And he offers himself to all who believe. We all have access to these riches, to ultimate knowledge, to the perfection of wisdom. Because Christ offers himself to us to all who will come and believe and trust in his grace. Now, you'll notice that this assertion that all we need is found in Christ, if you think about it, that's a very exclusive statement, isn't it? He's saying that a lot of people are wrong by saying this about Jesus Christ. But it's kind of interesting how this emphatic declaration comes right after his call for unity and love. So it kind of begs the question, Is unity at all costs the goal? No. Unity at all costs is not the goal for the church. There are some who say the church is so fragmented, you have different denominations, different traditions, and you're all so divided, and that's not what Jesus wants. Well, the reality is if the truth is compromised, then unity cannot happen. It cannot happen. Unity is not a higher priority than the truth of the gospel. True unity, the kind that Paul prays for, the kind of of bond that he wants to see, is a byproduct and a result of effective gospel ministry. Paul sees their unity as directly related to their shared beliefs about who Jesus is, that in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Christian unity is something that the gospel creates. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Christian unity is something that the gospel creates. And what that means is that if we sacrifice the gospel, we will have no unity of any value. J.C. Ryle warned so many years ago, unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. So yes, Paul wants them to be knit together. He wants this love and this bond to be shared But it's within the bounds and the confines of the truth about Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross for sins and rose again, and that there is not salvation found in any other name except through Christ. Unity and love and this bond can only be experienced by those who are fully bought into this message, this good news of the gospel. What this means is that doctrinal clarity is essential if we're going to be spiritually strong. It's essential. A laser focus on Christ is essential if we want to be encouraged and grow in our faith. If we have different understandings of who Jesus is, if we have different understandings of what Jesus accomplished, if we have different understandings of what it looks like to pursue Christ and know Christ and follow Christ, we're probably not going to be a very united church, are we? We'll be going in 27 different directions. Paul declares this doctrinal truth that Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. And this is not incompatible with his prayer for their unity. 
It's actually the key to it. It's the key to it. So spiritual strength is produced by a deeper understanding of Christ. As we come to understand and know Christ more deeply, our hearts are made strong. Our faith is made firm. What these people needed was to embrace Christ as sufficient and press in to know him more. And that's what you and I need as well. There's a third point we find in verse 4. So spiritual strength is something that's built in the context of community. That's number one. It is produced as we grow in the knowledge of Christ. But third, spiritual strength enables us to resist error. Paul's just made this emphatic statement about who Christ is, a doctrinal statement, a theological statement. And in verse 4, he tells us why he has to define this truth for us. He says, I say this, verse 4, here's the reason, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I say this about Christ. That in him are found all the riches and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that no one may delude you by telling you something different. You see, it is possible for those in the church to be deluded. What does that word mean? To be deluded, to be tricked, to be deceived, to be led astray. Paul knows that's a very real possibility. He knows that there are false teachers. And I think there's two kinds of false teachers. There's the kind of false teachers that are deceived they've believed a lie and they're very sincere but they're sincerely wrong there's another kind of false teacher that's even more devious who's not deceived but is a deceiver that kind of false teacher knows exactly what they're saying and they know it's wrong but they have a motive they have an agenda and it's to submarine your faith Paul knows that there are plausible arguments out there in the world being advanced by all different types of people, different types of movements, different types of churches even. And there are arguments that could delude us and take us away from this fundamental truth of Christ and his glory and his sufficiency and his supremacy. He says they bring plausible arguments. Plausible meaning it sounds good. On the surface, it actually makes sense. But upon further examination, as you get beneath the surface, you see that these so-called arguments for a better way or another way outside of Christ, that they're actually futile and they are false. We'll see more about the specific types of arguments Paul has in mind as chapter 2 unfolds, so I won't get into that now. But it, it needs to be said this morning, for us today, that not everything you hear on Christian radio can be trusted. Not everything for sale, even at the Christian bookstore, is safe. There are movements and ideologies in the world that are subtle but antithetical to Christ, detracting from his glory and very subtly taking key ingredients away or perhaps adding in one or two additional ingredients. But such small changes are enough to distort the true gospel and shipwreck our faith. Paul knows that Satan is on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter, that faithful pastor, told his people to be sober, be watchful because of that lion who's on the hunt. To be awake, to be aware, to be on guard. My kids, I just thought of this this moment because I'm looking at my kids, so I'll share this story. They have this game they like to play that I'm kind of tired of. Every time I come up the stairs from my office, they hide behind there's a corner behind the wall. And they jump out and they try to scare me when I come up to the top of the stairs. And they laugh really hard when I jump and it startles me. And I say, don't do that. Well, it worked the first several times, but you know what's happened now? You know what happens every time I come around that corner? I'm always checking to see if one of my kids is sitting there waiting to jump out and try to get me. If you are prepared and you know that somebody's trying to jump you, you're not going to be caught off guard. And that's what Paul is saying here. I'm saying this. I'm trying to teach you about who Christ really is so that you won't be caught off guard, so that no one will delude you, no one will surprise you, no one will deceive you. I was deceived one time. I still remember this. I think I was in first grade. A friend gave me a marble, a yellow marble, and told me it was a gumball. <laughs> Bit down on that thing so hard. He tricked me. I never trusted that guy again. Never. Um, and I was never tricked again. We have to be aware, friends. 
we have to be aware that there are plausible arguments. There are people who want to deceive you. Satan wants to deceive you, to lead you away from Christ because he hates Christ and he hates you. He doesn't want you to be encouraged. He doesn't want you to be strengthened. He doesn't want you to reach maturity in Christ. So if he can get you off track, he's going to. Friends, this is a lot more serious than just getting startled at the top of the stairs or biting down on a glass marble. It's really a matter of life and death. Sinclair Ferguson, pastor, professor, says this, martyrdom will never kill you ultimately. I mean, even if someone kills us, we know there's resurrection coming. He says, but false teaching always will. Have you ever thought about that, that false teaching is actually more dangerous to you than martyrdom? than someone trying to take your life. It's true. It's true. So Paul is so adamant about the truth of Christ because he doesn't want these people to be deluded. And it's not that he wants a big church. It's not that he wants more people to agree with him and be on his side. It's that souls are at stake. Our salvation depends on Christ. Paul knows that if we abandon Christ then we abandon our only hope of glory, our only hope of salvation. So what's the secret to avoiding this deception? How do we make sure we don't get sucked into some scheme that will rob us of our spiritual inheritance? Paul says it's simply the knowledge of Christ. This is the inoculation against error. This is like getting your vaccination so that you don't get polio. We need a strong faith in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. If we believe the truth that that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we will be less susceptible to all of these plausible arguments. What that means for us is that doctrinal ignorance, for you and for me, is really something that can put you in spiritual jeopardy. Being theologically naive leaves you vulnerable to deception. But if we press on to know Christ, and if we are confident in who he is and what the scriptures reveal about him, then we will be inoculated against the errors that threaten to undermine our faith. Why would we run after some new thing, some extra thing, if we have Jesus and we know how great he is? That's what Paul wants for us. Spiritual strength, as it's developed as we pursue Christ, enables us to resist error. There's a final thing Paul says about spiritual strength in verse 5. And it's this, spiritual strength brings joy to God's servants. Paul says, for though I'm absent in body... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Notice Paul's affectionate language for these people. We see it in verse 1, we see it in verse 5, that he labors for them. That word for struggle is similar to our English word for agony. He agonizes for them. But he also rejoices in them. He rejoices to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. He's delighted to see them spiritually thriving and healthy. And their spiritual maturity and strength, it just brings him so much joy. The Apostle John felt the same way about the people he ministered to. In 3 John, verse 4, John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And he wasn't talking about his physical children. He was talking about the people for whom he felt spiritually responsible. The people he had preached to and counseled and shepherded and discipled and invested. And he says, there's nothing that brings me more joy than seeing you all be faithful and walk in the truth. On the flip side, I think perhaps there's no greater grief than to see people who know the truth and who at one time seemed to be walking with Christ reject him, or fall away from him. It's a sad story that we see all throughout Scripture. In 1 Samuel 15, we see that Samuel grieved over Saul. This man who'd been anointed king, but disobeyed God and was eventually rejected. And that broke Samuel's heart. In Psalm 119, the psalmist writes, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. In Philippians 3.18, Paul writes that many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The prophet Jeremiah, who had a difficult ministry to a stubborn nation, 
wrote this in Jeremiah 13, 15. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 19, approached the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over it. He was heartbroken that these people had access to the truth, and they had heard the good news, but they pushed him away. Paul writes in Romans 9 that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his fellow Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, who did not believe in Christ. Why is this? Why is it that all these men of God, these servants of God, would experience such anguish and heartbreak because someone else isn't responding to the truth? Why don't we just say, you know what? I'm going to let them do them. I'm going to do me, and I'm, I'm just going to make sure that I'm following Jesus and not worry about them. Why is that? Well, I want to point your attention again back up to verse 2. What did Paul want for them? He wanted them to be knit together in love. And I think what Paul is praying for them, what he wants for them, is something that he himself feels very, very deeply. He himself, that's why he can say, I'm not with you in body, but I feel like I'm there in spirit. He's emotionally attached to these people and deeply invested in them. So much, though, that he speaks of himself as being there in spirit. He not only feels a great responsibility for them, but he finds great joy in their good. And what is it that he wants to rejoice in? We see specifically that he wants to see their good order, their good order. This is, this is a, an organizational term that was sometimes used to, to refer to a, a military regiment that was in lockstep, that was holding their rank, functioning as a unit. He wants to see the church together, united, standing as one and working together rather than being scattered and divided. And listen, it's always false teaching and error that scatters and divides and brings disunity. The truth is something that should unify the church. Error and and falsehood is what brings division. He says, though, that he rejoices to see their good order. It's a sign of health and strength when they stand together in Christ and stand together Christ, but he also wants to see the firmness of their faith. See that in verse 5. He rejoices to see this, this sign of health, the firmness and strength of their faith, that they stand strong against error, that they hold fast, like uh, it brings the image to my mind of a, a lighthouse on a dark shore, and the wind and the waves are crashing against this structure, but no matter how much the storm howls, it stays right there. Strong on its foundation, continuing to shine light in the middle of the storm. Firm in their faith. Not getting pushed off of their foundation of Jesus Christ. No matter how much the wind blows or the waves crash. The spiritual strength that Paul longs for, he not only wants it because it's good for them. He says, this is what brings me so much joy. I love you and I want what's best for you. Which means I want to see you stick together. And stay faithful to Christ. You know, the more I read Colossians, the more I think that this church really was doing well. The false teaching doesn't seem to have corrupted them yet. You know, there's other letters that Paul writes when he writes to the Galatians, when he writes to the Corinthian church, that he has to address and deal with big problems. They had serious issues that had infected and affected the church. And Paul has to rebuke them and call those out. But he never does that here to the Colossians. Because I don't think these things had yet taken root in the church. Paul's concern here is more proactive than reactive. He's more concerned for their future, not a present problem. They've started well. His concern is simply that they hold the line and stay committed to Christ. One commentator said this, This epistle, Colossians, is like a vaccine against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already afflicted. And because of that, this letter, I think, is so appropriate for our church because I see this church the same way. We've started well. There's a lot of good things going on here. And you all are embracing the truth of who Christ really is. If you didn't like that, you wouldn't come because you'd get really tired of hearing about it. 
from this flimsy pulpit, um, but this very true and powerful scripture. And it doesn't matter if it's me preaching or someone else. You're hearing the same thing no matter who stands here. And you all want that. You all believe in that. You stand for that. But what about the future? What about five years from now, ten years from now? For those of you who are younger, what about when you grow up and move out and go to find your own church? Is this going to be the kind of truth that you desire where you say, I will settle for nothing less. I want all the riches and the wealth of treasure and wisdom that's found in Christ So when you show up to a church, you demand to hear of Jesus. You don't want to hear somebody's stories. You don't want to see cool movie clips and hear cultural commentary and get my reactions to whatever's in the news. Like those Gentiles that came, the people from Greece, and talked to Jesus' disciples and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Is that your heart? It needs to be. What about the future? What about the future? I think there's wisdom in this letter to strengthen us and to focus us even more on Christ and the truth of the gospel. You know, the best time to resist false teaching is before it infects the church. It really is. We need to remain firm in our faith. We need to stay hungry to press in and know Christ more And to stay firm and strong in our commitment to him. Don't let spiritual lethargy keep you from pursuing Christ. Don't let spiritual boredom lead you to start looking somewhere else for something new. For some new trick, some new method, some new approach, some new insight. That's not the historic truths that have been handed down since Christ and his apostles. We need to stay faithful to that message. Do not allow anything or anyone to compete with Christ in your heart, to detract from Christ in your mind, to displace Christ as the sum and center of your faith. This is the key to being spiritually encouraged, spiritually strong, so that we reach the final goal of maturity. So let's just get personal for a moment and ask ourselves, if this is really what we need, is to know Christ, and if this is really who Christ is, in his supremacy and his sufficiency, and if this is really what's at stake, that we could potentially be deluded, then let me ask you, are you pressing in to know Christ? Are you? In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a story. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. When a man found this treasure, he covered it up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. That looks crazy to someone on the outside. Why would that guy sell everything he has to buy that little patch of ground that everybody knows isn't worth that much? Well, it's because this person knows the value of the treasure that is buried in that field, and it's worth selling everything else for. Does your life show that kind of a value statement on Christ and his kingdom and his glory and his gospel and his truth? Or are you content just to sprinkle in a little Jesus on the side as you kind of do your life the way you want to do it? Or is Jesus everything to you? He needs to be. Paul writes in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, get this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Could you say something like that personally for yourself? That you count everything else as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. That nothing else matters in comparison to him. And you are willing and ready to sacrifice or set aside anything for the sake of knowing Christ and becoming more like him. Let me ask you, how does that fit in with your media consumption? Would your Netflix stats echo Philippians chapter 3? 
Is that reflected in your regular pursuit of Christ in Scripture? As we read the written word to encounter the incarnate word, Jesus Christ himself, are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness and pursuing Christ here in the Scriptures? Or is the only Bible you get maybe what you hear in this place on Sunday morning? Do your prayers reveal just the fact that you need some things from God, like to help you pass that test you didn't study for well enough? Or to help you endure that impossible coworker who's tempting you to break the commandment, thou shalt not kill. You know, God, just help me be patient with them today. Or do your prayers reveal a desire and a desperate need to know more of Christ? Do you come here on Sunday? Because, yeah, it's probably the right thing to do, and I don't want to look like a pagan and never show up. Do you come here on Sunday because you enjoy seeing some of your friends? small talking. Do you come here on Sunday because it's just a habit? That's how your parents raised you, and that's just what you do. You go to church. Or do you come here on Sunday because you are eager to see more of your Savior and be encouraged in your faith and strengthened so that you can make it to the end faithful and mature? When we realize that our greatest need is to be made strong in Christ, when we believe that in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, then Christ will be our pursuit and our focus. And if he's not, then we're going to be spiritually weak instead of strong. We're going to be spiritually vulnerable instead of standing firm. My prayer for this church, for myself and for you, is that God would fortify our faith as we draw nearer to Christ and press in to know him more so that we will be faithful to the end, no matter what the world may say. Let's aim together for spiritual encouragement that comes, that comes from unity in Christ, that comes from apprehending the truth of Christ, and that is guarded and protected as we reassert our commitment to hold to Christ, him above all. Father, as we read your word, we are thankful that in Christ you have given us everything we need. There's nothing lacking. I pray, Lord, that you'd forgive us for our foolish pursuits, seemingly sometimes, of anything and everything except Jesus. I pray, God, that you would give us that longing like Paul had to know you more and to be made more like you. I pray that you'd protect us from the subtle and dangerous arguments that are out there in the world, the subtle and dangerous arguments that have even infiltrated the Christian church. Help us to be aware and to be immune to those errors because we know who Jesus is and we understand the glory and depth of the mystery of Christ, that it's through him that you are accomplishing your good purposes of bringing salvation to the world, that he is supreme. I pray, God, that you'd establish us, make us firm in our faith, and encourage our hearts today as we seek to pursue Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.